The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Case-by-Case, Actioning Patient-Centered Strategies for Risk Assessment, Diagnosis, and Management of Amyloid-Related Imaging Abnormalities. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QVT860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for coming. We are really excited. Um, We're going to be talking primarily about ARIA and giving practical strategies for how to uh, talk with patients uh, about the risks uh, and benefits of the new amyloid-lowering treatments, um, how to detect ARIA, and what to do once you see it. And we're going to, in large part, use a case-based approach. Uh, So this is going to be very practical, and it's something that we're all going to be learning about um, as these new treatments become available. And so we really look forward to your input and your questions and your answers about how you might approach the cases that we are uh, presenting to you. Uh, Most of the cases are actual cases from clinical practice or or from research trials. And I feel really uh, good that uh, the faculty has been working, uh, the three of us have been working very hard to uh, test these new drugs and to uh, learn about uh, what the risks and the benefits are and uh, the main side effect being ARIA and how best to to manage it. So this is a work in progress that we're all joining in together. The goals uh, for uh, today are to augment your ability to select appropriate patients for treatment with amyloid-lowering antibodies, uh, equip you with the skills needed to monitor and manage uh, ARIA, um, and provide tools and knowledge needed to educate patients and their care partners about uh, ARIA. Actually, let me introduce the... uh, uh, my colleagues on the panel. Um, on my left is Tammy Benziger, who is a professor of radiology from Washington University and is also director of the imaging core for the Diane studies, which have been so informative about understanding Alzheimer's disease. Um, and Kath Mummery, uh, is a, on my right, is a consultant uh, neurologist and the head of no- novel therapeutics for the Dementia Research Center at the University of College London, and a very experienced clinical trialist. Okay, so I'm gonna start out and talk about the selection of patients for amyloid-lowering antibody treatment, um, and uh, and a discussion with patients about uh, informing them and um, deciding whether or not this is helping them decide whether this is a treatment that uh, might be helpful for them. Um, as you know, there are uh, three antibodies that ha- are moving forward in development. Uh, aducanumab received accelerated approval in June of 2021. Um, in January 2023, lecanumab also received accelerated approval from FDA for treatment of early AD. Um, in May of this year, um, Denanumab, uh, Lily announced the phase three results in a press release. We'll hear more later this afternoon, more details about that phase three trial, but with positive outcomes. Uh, 
And just recently, the FDA granted full approval, the first full approval, for an amyloid-lowering antibody, a disease-modifying type treatment. Um, and our, uh, our national health care coverage, our Medicare system, has agreed to cover it uh, with some uh, restrictions. So they are moving into clinical practice. That's the bottom line. So who is appropriate? All of these drugs have been tested for people with early Alzheimer's disease, so mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia due to Alzheimer's. It requires uh, amyloid confirmation. Uh, that can be with PET <coughs> or CSF or possibly with a plasma test. That's to be determined, but clearly with PET or CSF. And they still have to be mild. So um, depending on the drug, the criteria will a little, uh, vary a little bit, but for lecanemab, for example, the MMSC range of 22 to 30, and there could be an equivalent MOCA score if you don't use the MMSC of a, around 18 or higher. Um, and there's a new label uh, for lecanemab from the FDA, and also there are appropriate use recommendations from, um, for aducanemab and lecanemab. Now, it's really important to try to um, avoid treating people who are at high risk for a serious outcome. Um, most of you, as you'll hear from uh, all of us, usually um, aria is transient and asymptomatic, but it can be symptomatic, and occasionally it can be serious or even fatal. And I think there are steps that we can take to limit that, as we did in the clinical trials. Um, so for people that have, so it's important to get a baseline MRI scan, make sure there are not more than four microhemorrhages, more than one area of superficial siderosis, severe white matter changes, a macrohemorrhage, more than two lacunar infarcts, a large single cortical infarct. People are, are required to have safety MRI scans that they can't tolerate or can't have an MRI for a medical reason. Um, then they would not be a good candidate. There's a debate, but in the appropriate use recommendations, we recommended not treating people on anticoagulation because there's an increased risk of hemorrhage uh, with drug and anticoagulation, at least so far. Um, and people have to have stable medical and psychiatric status so that they can participate, that, so th uh, there's not a medical condition that would interfere with the treatment. You'll hear more from Tammy especially about the radiology of uh, ARIA, but there's two basic classifications, ARIA-E, or effusion, um, or edema, and ARIA-H, uh, related to hemosiderin, or microhemorrhages, hemosiderosis. This is the most common side effect with this type of medication, um, and I've already said about that it's usually transient and asymptomatic, but it can be symptomatic and uh, serious. What are the main risk factors for ARIA? Well, the main risk factors are APOE4 copy number. So the, if you have one copy, you're at increased risk, and if you have two copies, the risk goes up substantially. The dose of the antibody that's used, the presence of underlying cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and the presence of significant cerebrovascular disease. And this gives you some more information about APOE genotyping. 
So those that carry two copies, especially of APOE4, have a higher rate of aria, and you can see on this graph on the right for aducanumab, 66% of E4 homozygotes will develop aria. That's a pretty high rate. So if you're counseling someone, you can tell them there's a very good chance if they're an E4 homozygote that they're going to have aria with, as they go up on the dose. Um, they have an earlier occurrence, a higher rate of recurrence, and a, a greater likelihood of, likelihood of a more serious outcome. So if you uh, looked at the new label for uh, lecanemab, uh, it now uh, gives the recommendation that all patients should be tested for APOE prior to uh, starting treatment so they can give informed consent and to also guide clinical management. That's a change in clinical practice. We've been doing this at our site for more than 10 years. It's gone extremely well, uh, but it's not the standard of care yet. And so I think it needs to become the standard of care if we're going to offer these treatments safely and in an informed way. Okay, so how do you talk, getting to a more <laughs> practical approach, how do you talk to uh, folks if you're, they're considering treatment? Well, I'm sure all of you who are in clinical practice do this, is with any treatment. Every treatment has potential benefits and risks, and it's always a risk-benefit. You weigh the risks and the benefits, and hopefully the, uh, the equation is favorable uh, for the patient, and they decide that the treatment is right for them. Um, it's important also to discuss with them the diagnosis. Do, what, do they have Alzheimer's disease? What stage of Alzheimer's disease? Um, do they meet the criteria for a treatment with an amyloid-lowering antibody? And what's the potential benefit of that? The main potential benefit is that hopefully it will slow down the disease process and keep them in a milder stage of Alzheimer's with a better quality of life for longer. That's the goal. Um, then you have to talk about the risk. And it's going to be individualized to depending on their APOE status, what their MRI shows, their other comorbidities. Um, but you talk about ARIA, talk about their particular APOE genotype. What I do is I go over, for whatever drug they're considering, what the rates of ARIA are based on their APOE genotype. And that data is available um, uh, for you uh, to access. Uh, and then I'd say that in most cases, as we just said, ARIA is asymptomatic and transient. There are fluid shifts in the brain that we need MRI to monitor for, but there can be symptoms and sometimes serious symptoms, and it's extremely important for them to let us know if they notice that there's been a change. And sometimes those changes are very vague, like confusion. And confusion in Alzheimer's disease is almost a daily thing, but more confusion, or headache, or unsteadiness. And then it's it takes clinical judgment to decide what steps to take, whether or not to uh, investigate further for ARIA. So let, let me give you a few cases, and uh, Kath will follow up on what the outcomes were with those cases. So the first case is a 56-year-old woman uh, with uh, mild dementia, mini-mental of 22, a positive amyloid PET scan, her APOE genotype is E44. 
She has a strong family history of Alzheimer's disease, and she had no MRI or medical exclusions for treatment with an amyloid-lowering antibody. And her baseline MRI on the flare sequence, there really no significant subcortical hyperintensities. There were no microhemorrhages. So she, there was no ex, nothing that excluded her from treatment. So the question is to you, first polling question for the group, uh, is this patient appropriate for treatment with an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody? And your choices are, please vote, because we want to know what you think. Uh, one, I'm not sure, two, yes, or three, no. Okay, I can't tell how many people voted, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a big bar there in the middle. So, um, <laughs> 80% on this, however many people responded, 80% of you uh, said she would be appropriate, 9% uh, not appropriate, and 12% uh, I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to hear later what your thoughts are, uh, those of you who felt that sh the patient was not appropriate, um, because certainly there is controversy uh, in the guidelines and different guidelines about whether patients who are E4 homozygote should be treated. Uh, the label allows for it, the appropriate use recommendations allow for it, the VA does not, our Veterans Administration does not allow for it, and the American Academy of Neurology recommended against it. So there's not a clear consensus about these patients. So in this case, and talking with her and her family, she was very concerned because of her family history of Alzheimer's of becoming impaired. And she wanted to do what she could to avoid that, she was willing to accept the risk. She was informed that she was at high risk, that she was considering aducanumab uh, when that was approved, uh, that she was at high risk for ARIA. She understood that. Um, and we encouraged her to be really vigilant about letting us know if anything, if she would develop any uh, changes. And she did go on treatment, and Kath will, will share with you the follow-up. Second case uh, is a 70-year-old man with mild cognitive impairment, so less impaired than the first person, mini mental of 27, positive amyloid PET, also an E4 homozygote. These are real, real patients. Uh, and again, no MRI or medical exclusions. He had a mild to moderate degree of subcortical hyperintensities, but he had no microhemorrhages or siderosis or macrohemorrhage or anything else that would exclude him from treatment. Um, so the polling question for you, same question. Is this patient appropriate for treatment with an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody? So the choices are one, I'm not sure, two, yes, or three, no. Okay, so slightly lower uh, enthusiasm, but still the majority felt 72% should be treated, yes, appropriate, 19% no, and 9% I'm not sure. And so, similar discussion um, where he understood that he was at increased risk, that he was going to have uh, regular MRI scans as part of the protocol, and that he was going to notify us uh, with any uh, side effects that he might have noticed. Okay, the third case is a 78-year-old man with mild dementia, mini-mental of 24, had CSF testing consistent with Alzheimer's disease, uh, APOE34 heterozygote. He's on anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation. 
And his, MRI, his baseline MRI, he had mild to moderate uh, small vessel changes, had three microhemorrhages, one area of superficial siderosis, two small lacunar infarcts. And the circled areas are um, on the GRE uh, sequence are areas of microhemorrhage. The arrow is an area of siderosis. If you look closely at the image, there may be a couple of other dark areas on there. That, and counting these things is not absolute, and um, radiologists differ by how many they come up with. Uh, there is a cutoff of four. Uh, so this person's on the borderline, but probably is above that. And Tammy will talk to you about even more sensitive sequences like SWI, where you see more uh, uh, hemosiderin deposits. Uh, so same question for this patient is, is he appropriate for treatment with an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody? One, I'm not sure. Two, yes. Or three, no. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, I like the audience. So I like where you're going. So 90% said no. Um, so his MRI is concerning for underlying CAA, uh, plus he's on anticoagulants, which increases the risk of a hemorrhage, uh, especially in people on at least uh, lecanemab. We don't know about aducanemab. Uh, he, he is an APOE4 uh, carrier, um, and we didn't feel comfortable treating him. And so I said, you know, we're not treating people on anticoagulants, plus the CAA that you have a likely CAA makes you put you at high risk for a serious outcome. Um, and so uh, he agreed. Um, and we discussed there may be clinical trials that, uh, with a different mechanism that would allow people with uh, the MRI changes consistent with CAA to safely enroll. And so he was not treated. So you won't hear about him from CAT. <laughs> okay, moving on to Tammy. All right. Thank you, Steve. So um, a question that we get a lot is sort of what, what's the underlying pathophysiology for ARIA? And the predominant hypothesis that happens is actually that this is related to the amyloid deposits in the blood vessel walls. And so as that amyloid gets removed, you can have spontaneous ARIA. Um, related to the disruption of those blood vessel walls and maybe immune response there as well. Um, and so this re results in the findings that we see on MRI, um, which can be edema. So the middle image is showing you what we call vasogenic edema on an MRI, that flare hyperintensity that's circled in red. Um, a lot of times people say, well, how do you know the difference between cerebral amyloid angiopathy-related inflammation and aria, and the answer is from, from an imaging perspective, we don't have a test yet. Um, and in fact, if you look at all of the clinical trials, you'll see there's a certain rate of aria in the placebo arms, and those are people that are probably having underlying CAA as well. And so this also helps to highlight why pre-existing CAA um, is a relative contraindication for all of these therapeutics. So um, the key things that we look for on, the on these scans are ARIA-E, which stands for the edema and the effusions, and ARIA-H, which stands for hemorrhage. 
Um, and I'm gonna show you some examples of that as we go through it. Now, the tricky thing for us in radiology is the symptoms of aria are not very specific. So things like headache, confusion, dizziness, nausea. Um, when these patients present to our emergency departments, it's really important that we have a high level of awareness that they may be on one of these therapies. They may have underlying dementia and not be able to say that explicitly. But as these drugs become more common in our populations, we're gonna to need to be thinking about that as we manage them through the system. Here's just a, a couple of examples. So the, the two key sequences that we use, one is called FLARE, so that's shown on the left, and that shows us the ARIA-E. And you can see that this can present um, in the parenchyma, or it can present in the subarachnoid space, and that's what we call that superficial effusion. And then correspondingly, um, when we have the ARIA-H, it can present as these microhemorrhages, these little dots, um, as well as superficial siderosis. So that would be in that subarachnoid space. And if you're, if you're looking carefully, you'll see these are the same patients, and those two things tend to co-occur when the patient is presenting. And if, as it resolves, the ARIA-E should go away, and then the siderosis, the ARIA-H, that stain in the brain will stay. Okay, this is probably the most important slide, and I can tell you it's, it's hard to remember. So every time we have a case, we pull it up, we pull up the label, we look at the table to try to remember, because the characterization of a case as mild, moderate, or severe has serious implications for the patient therapy. Um, and in fact, this is, this is not, do I think it looks moderate? There's a very strict criteria that the FDA has put forward that's common to both the aducanumab and the lecanumab labels in the United States. So I just want to point out the, the sizes on flare. The cutoffs are 5 centimeters, 10 centimeters, or greater than 10 centimeters. And then the next thing that moves it from mild to moderate would also be if it were multifocal. Um, and then finally, if you start to get sulcal involvement, that also moves you towards that severe stage. And then similarly, as Dr. Salway mentioned, um, there's this cutoff of the microhemorrhages. If they have four versus five, and it's really difficult for the radiologist to know sometimes whether that microhemorrhage is new or old, et cetera. Um, and then finally, these areas of siderosis. And so it's really, really important um, for the radiologist, um, honestly, if we see any case that could be ARIA, to have an open communication channel with our neurology colleagues, but most importantly, if we're calling something into the moderate or the severe range, that's definitely a critical communication that we need to make. And um, I just want to say there are a lot of technical details on this slide, um, but basically what we need to do is have a very consistent manner in which we're acquiring these images so we can see if there's a change from the baseline. And um, there are recommendations here. Um, it's been published in the AJNR last year as well to be able to get to those details. And then, again, just some examples for severity. So um, here's an example of a patient who had a normal flare scan at baseline, developed a small area of visogenic edema post-treatment, but then that resolved post-treatment. 
Here's another example of a larger area of aria, so this would be hitting that five centimeter area, and so that would be a moderate aria E. And then um, I think the, the micro hemorrhages are probably the most difficult thing for us to do. Different scanner vendors have had different sequences, some of which are proprietary, that may detect fewer or more. And this is why um, we've standardized as a field on this T2-star GRE, which is not the fanciest scan that we can ever do, but is one that gives us standardization. And so, um, at least at my institution, what we've been doing for a couple of years, because this GRE is fast, is basically run the SWI and the GRE. So we've got a baseline with both techniques to compare it to. And this is just showing you, as you change um, the sequence, you can see a different number of microhemorrhages, but also as you change the field strength, that can also impact it. So, if possible, if you can keep your participants on the same um, field strength of scanner coming in, that's ideal. For most of us, that's not necessarily going to be possible. All right. And then um, the other thing to know is, you know, we're all here at the Alzheimer's meeting. We're thinking about Alzheimer's. We're thinking about ARIA. But there are a lot of other things that can look just like this or very similar to it on an MRI. Um, Things like stroke, subarachnoid hemorrhage, infection, malignancy. I mean, these are older patients. They may have lung cancer, another process that they developed during the course of your treatment, or maybe they had it in the past and it's in remission and now they're going on therapy, um, as well as PRESS, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. And the, the most important thing is knowing that they're on this treatment. And of course, again, these are patients who have some degree of impairment, and when you ask them what their medications are, they may only think about the pills that they're taking and not tell the provider that they're taking an infusion. And in particular, um, in my opinion, the most dangerous thing is when they show up at the ER and they work them up as a stroke patient and move them down a TPA pathway before they realize that they're on one of these therapies and are at risk for hemorrhages. Okay, so we're going to go through some cases. This was a 72-year-old patient. Um, I'm not showing you his baseline image, but on this follow-up, he had one new hyperintensity, I've circled it for you, one new microhemorrhage, and then this is a new sequence, diffusion is negative. So, um, what is this? I'm not sure, aria, infarct, brain met, or infection? All right, and so, you know, we've, we've got a mixture. We're not sure, it might be aria. Um, you guys are right, it's, it's not an infarct. The way we can see that is that negative diffusion. So that final scan diffusion would be bright if this were an infarct. Um, brain met, an infection, we can't assess very well with the sequences I've given you. We would need usually typically contrast to do those, and I didn't show you that. So that's why I'm not sure is also a great answer for this question. Okay, and so this was Aria, um, and so given these findings, would you call this uh, mild Aria E, mild Aria H, um, both of those, or since it's both of them, does that make it severe? Okay, and you guys got it? It was, the, it was a combination of both of those because of the microhemorrhage and the effusion. All right, so this is a 70-year-old. 
um, who came in and had bilateral occipital flare hyperintensities. Um, they were cortical and white matter. Also a sulcal effusion, which you can see with that arrow on the flare. And in those same areas, you can see some siderosis and microhemorrhages, but no restricted diffusion. And so what would you call this? Not sure, aria, infarct, brain met, or infection. Okay, so again, um, not sure is a very reasonable answer because you only have three images and three sequences. Um, in this case, this was an example of aria. And so if I've told you that it's aria, next question is how severe is it? I'm not sure. It's moderate E, moderate H, both of those, or severe. And, good job. So this was moderate E and H. But again, these are, these are hard cases. Um, and obviously I'm only showing you three images, but they're the kinds of cases that when it comes up in the reading room, we scratch our heads and argue a lot. Okay, so this is a patient 73 years old. Um, also had this new flare hyperintensity. Now this flare hyperintensity is greater than five centimeters and there is a microhemorrhage associated and there is also restricted diffusion. And this is also a great example of how our real life patients are moving. So not, not the greatest example of, um, not the most beautiful scan, but a real thing that we see. So, same question, um, not sure, aria, infarct, brain met, infection. Okay, so it was a trick question. Um, in this case, this was an infarct and the diffusion sequence is the key. So on all those, the other cases I was showing you, the diffusion was blank. When you see this uh, diffusion restriction, let's see, I can point to it with this one, I think. Um, that tells you that it's an infarct and that's not something you should see with a classic case of aria. All right, another case, 73 year old, multifocal, flare hyperintensity, lots of um, microhemorrhages, siderosis, but also has um, some very strange looking diffusion findings. So, aria, infarct, brain med infection. <coughs> the questions are familiar now. All right, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> very tough case. And so you would want to get the whole, all of the sequences of the brain MRI, a full standard <laughs> protocol, not just a brief aria screening protocol. If you saw something like this and we're doing an abbreviated study, you definitely want to follow up. So this was in fact a late subacute infarct. Um, and that strange look of the diffusion is it fades over time. And it's also quite common to have this hemorrhagic transformation within infarcts. All right, next case, 83 years old. We've got uh, area of vasogenic edema, greater than five centimeters, sulcal effusions. Here you can see an example right here. We've also got siderosis. So you can see those same areas are showing up as dark on susceptibility, some microhemorrhages, um, and then diffusion restriction, um, but a very strange pattern, not 
not following exactly the same area. So, what was this one? Not sure, aria, infarct, brain med infection. A lot of people, again, I, I, right, I'm only giving you three sequences, quite reasonable. Um, in this case, the trick is, again, this diffusion sequence looks so strange, right? We shouldn't be seeing diffusion restriction with aria, and if, if it were an infarct, it would be following the gray matter, which this is kind of in, in the sulci, which is also a little bit weird. And so this is, uh, in fact, bacterial meningitis. So again, if all you're looking at is flare and SWI, you might be thinking aria, um, but you need to get some other sequences to work this up. Same question with this one. Um, new case, this person comes in, they've got flare hyperintensity, a microbleed, and this, now I'm showing you a new sequence, this is a T1 post contrast. So we gave gadolinium and there's a little dot of enhancement in there. So is this aria infection now I read them out of order to mess you up. <laughs> Aria, infarct, brain met, or infection. All right, and so this was brain met. So some of you are using process of elimination and realizing that we're seeing, we're kind of running out of choices, so good, good job. <laughs> All right, and so again, um, you know, particularly if you, if you have a positive finding on a case and there's things about the case that aren't making sense, um, contrast is a really good option to include to try to work these up. All right, case 10. So a uh, 66-year-old, also with uh, bilateral flare hyperintensities, um, nothing showing up for microhemorrhages and no restricted diffusion. Um, now this person um, did present to our emergency department and they had confusion and headache, but they also had a very, very high blood pressure with this. And so um, thinking about this case, what are, what are the things you're thinking about? Not sure, aria, infarct, brain mat, or press. And we're sort of, sort of split between the two. And again, this, this could be aria, this could be press based on the images that you have here. Um, in particular, the, the clinical context is important. So very high blood pressure would be a classic presentation for press and they were treated for their hypertension. And in fact, um, the symptoms got better and the edema resolved. So you, even when you see something that looks just like ARIA and acts like ARIA, you gotta put it in the whole clinical context of that patient presentation. Okay, last case from this series. So 76 year old um, comes in, he's got new bilateral findings. So you can see on the flare. Um, he's also got no hemorrhages showing up and no restricted diffusion. So, um, what do you think about this one? Same, same choices, not sure, aria, infarct, brain med, infection. And most of you are say, saying, kind of worried about aria, so am I. And, um, and it, this was in fact a patient on um, immunotherapy. And so uh, the next question is, um, how severe is it? So um, you can see the findings here. Now I'm giving you the, the baseline scan for comparison and you can see these are new areas. This one's um, 
less than five centimeters. This one's more than five centimeters. There's a little sulcal effusion, um, multiple new flare hyperintensities. So would this be, um, you're not sure, it's moderate E, moderate H, both uh, moderate E and severe H or severe E. And again, kind of mixed response. And again, this is where I'm telling you, each time we have a case this complicated, we actually pull up the, uh, the grading scale again to look at it. If we can advance the slide. So, um, you know, by the FDA definition, even though we have more than one site, none of them are more than 10 centimeters. So for the ARIA-E, it would still... Um, technically just count as moderate. But again, this is somebody you're going to be really worried about clinically. Um, we should be calling ARIA, especially moderate results, we should be calling those to the neurologist right away. But this is one where I wouldn't just give the result to the nursing clinic. I would want to speak to Dr. Mummery or Dr. Salloway directly um, to talk about what's going on with this patient. Okay, and that is the conclusion of the quiz. Thanks, Tammy. Hi, everybody. Um, two things. Firstly, if in doubt, ask a neuroradiologist. Definitely. Steve and I both thought some of those were really hard. <laughs> so you did a great job. Um, yeah. Anyway, you've heard about the, the clinical discussion that you would need to have the risks and benefits when somebody comes to you to think about treatment from Steve, and you've just had a fantastic quiz from Tammy in terms of what ARIA does and doesn't look like and how not to miss it. And I think that really important point about the discussion between the neuroradiologist and the clinician is absolutely critical to everything we do here. And the other thing I think that just came out of that last case that was officially moderate, both Steve and I felt like that was a severe case. So clinical is as important in terms of determining what you're going to do with those patients as the official FDA moderate versus severe, especially in a case like that. So, okay, I'm just going to spend a few minutes going through various elements of the management of ARIA that you need to bear in mind when you're planning your treatment with these patients. Now, we've heard already earlier that the risk of ARIA is highest early in treatment. So 80% of ARIA occurs in the first six months. And if you look at this Kaplan-Meier curve, most of that occurs asymptomatically and is picked up just on a routine scan. So you can see the way that the curve goes up in steps. Each time you have an MRI, you pick up more incident cases. So most people, no symptoms early on. That's really important, especially when you're thinking about APOE4 homozygotes in your, in your um, treatment plan, especially when they are... Um, thinking about these particular, these particular therapies. And it's important that you have a monitoring strategy that works, that is based upon the guidelines, but that is also amenable to addition. So firstly, you need to have a really careful baseline scan, both for diagnosis, but also to monitor those exclusion criteria. And Steve showed some great examples earlier. Then you need to be able to scan regularly at the recommended intervals. And here you've got an example of the lecanemab schedule, but the aducanemab one is slightly different. This is just the lecanemab example. And the point here is that the imaging that they recommend in the recommendation gu guidelines is related to the most likely times of you finding ARIA. 
But that should be your minimum. You need to have clinical sensibility at this point about if somebody has potentially got symptoms that might suggest aria, especially in those first six months, especially if they're APOE4, you need a low threshold in order to make sure that you pick up those asymptomatic aria. And Tammy mentioned the importance about consistency across imaging. Now, that's easier said than done, but it's really important to try and do that so that you can compare across time and you don't see an additional number of microhemorrhages because you're doing a 3T as opposed to 1.5T in the same patient. So trying to keep those things standardized and, back again to that point, trying to make sure you've got a really close relationship and discussions all the time with your neuroradiologist is critical. And one of the reasons that's so important, you've heard this now a few times, is the non-specificity of the symptoms that occur with ARIA. Most people know symptoms, but if you do have symptoms, it might be a bit of a headache. It might be, as Steve said, that they're just a little bit more confused than usual. It's very infrequent that you have something like a seizure that makes you really think, hang on, what's going on? So you need to have a low threshold, especially early on, with a change in these sorts of non-specific symptoms. In addition, you need to think about the severity of those symptoms because that changes your action plan. Clearly, if someone has severe symptoms and the onset of seizures, you've got a very different management plan. You're a clinician, of course, compared to if they've just got a bit of a mild headache. And this is the algorithm that is recommended for Canamab. Um, also, I think, actually, for Aducanumab, it's the same. Most of these, again, are going to be found on routine monitoring scans. But some will also be found because they have symptoms suggestive of ARIA and you've scanned them. So on either one of those, if you find ARIA-E or ARIA-H, if you've got no symptoms and it's mild, and Tammy showed you the, de the, the definitions of mild, moderate, and severe, then you would think about continuing treatment. Now, that would be a discussion with your patient, with your patient's family. What do you want to do? These are the risks. These are the benefits. This has shown up on your scan. If we continue treatment, we would want to monitor very closely, make sure you're doing monthly MRIs, so you're scanning again before any continuation of dosing. And you would continue that monitoring until that ARIA-E has resolved and those ARIA-H have stabilized, they haven't changed. If at any point they develop symptoms, you end up over here. So if somebody has symptoms, regardless of the level of severity of the ARIA-E or H, or they have anything other than mild changes on their MRI, you suspend treatment. And at that point, it's really important that you're doing ongoing clinical assessment and you are, again, repeating your MRIs very frequently, monitoring for what changes. Now, most people will either have no symptoms or very mild symptoms that will resolve without any active treatment. You are monitoring and observing and making sure they're safe while things resolve. That's the majority of cases, but that's not all cases. And that's why we need, we really need to make sure that there are clear protocols and clear algorithms in all of our units when we start using these treatments, because we're just coming up to the beginning of using these treatments. There's an awful lot to learn. So in most people, it will resolve the symptoms resolve, you then have that discussion with the patient. Do you want to start treatment again? There is a possibility of this recurring. There are risks, depending on your, your different factors, which we'll come back to in a second. And in that discussion, you go through the risks and factors with that person and decide whether or not to start treatment. 
At any stage in this, if you develop certain features, you may well wish to discontinue treatment. The risk has now outweighed the benefits. So, for example, if you have a macrohemorrhage, if you have more than 10, you heard about this before, microhemorrhages, if you've had more than a couple of episodes of aria or severe symptoms, then you're really going to think, well, hang on a minute, perhaps this is not the way forwards for this patient. And again, that's about the discussion. That discussion that you have, it's critical that you think about the APOE status, their comorbidities, their medications, their wishes, symptoms that they've had, um, and the, importantly, equally importantly, the discussion that you've had with your radiological colleague about the severity of the aria. All of that weighs into whether you're going to restart treatment or not. Now, I said, most, most patients have asymptomatic resolving aria. However, you do get symptomatic aria, and we do get radiographically severe aria, and um, you need to have a plan at the unit there. You're going to give these treatments about what you do if that happens. Um, symptomatic aria is rare, 3%, but again, if you look at the homozygotes, you'll see that it is much more frequent, 9%, in the canamab as an example. If you look at the severe changes on MRI, again, it's only 1%, but it's much higher in the homozygotes, it's 5%. So that group really need a particular amount of care. And in terms of what that plan looks like, I mean, effectively, you need to have access to emergency treatment. You've got to be able to get MRI imaging urgently and get a TAMI to help talk you through what that shows. You need to think about what you're going to do for supportive treatment. Now, most people, even when they're admitted with severe aria, observation only, over time, with that monitoring, things resolve. But occasionally, you need steroids. Occasionally, you need to treat other features, such as seizures. That is very rare, but it happens, so you have to be prepared for it. Right. Now, Steve mentioned three cases earlier, two of which went on to treatment, and I'm just going to go through those briefly. So the case number one was a young onset um, Alzheimer's disease woman. You, she had a very strong family history, if you remember. She was APOE for homozygous, and she started treatment. So she was being titrated. She was on aducanumab. She went from one to three to six. She's on six, about to go to ten, and at that point, her safety scan showed ARIA-E. And you'll see that on that top row here. And that is classed as moderate according to the criteria we've just talked about. She's completely well, no symptoms. But it's moderate, so you suspended aducanumab and then followed up with MRI monthly. On the one-month MRI, you can see there's still persistence of the ARIA-E. She's also developed four microhemorrhages, which I'm not sure I can spot for you here on these tiny scans, but they're there. Over two months, that ARIA-E completely resolved and the ARIA-H stabilized. So what are you going to do with her? If you could answer this one, so I'm not sure, resume aducanumab, suspend treatment until the RAH has resolved, or discontinue permanently. Okay. This audience is good. <laughs> um, right, so most of you, 64%, two-thirds of you would resume aducanumab, but that means that one-third are not sure. One-third of, one of you, or 22%, have said, let's wait until REH is resolved. I mean, I think that's a very sensible principle, except that REH doesn't tend to resolve. You tend to end up with a, a persistent change. So REH will stabilize, and you look for the stabilization as opposed to continued accumulation of small microbleeds, which can happen. Um, so that's an important point that you've raised. Thank you for raising that. 
And indeed, with this young woman, there was a long discussion about the various factors for and against. And it was decided, especially because she was young and she'd had a mild, in terms of asymptomatic, rapid resolution on these scans, it was decided that we would continue or resume, but with very frequent MRI surveillance and low threshold to stop. And in fact, she had no further recurrence. She continues on treatment to this day. She remains very well, which is terrific. And the second patient of Steve's was a 70-year-old man. So older, milder MCI. Again, homozygous E4E4 started on treatment. You remember he had some white matter lesions on his scan, but nothing to exclude him. He again, asymptomatic, titrating up. He's at six milligrams, and his routine scan shows moderate multifocal aria E. And you can see with the arrows down here that there are a number of areas of vocal swelling. And he was at that point, well, no symptoms. So, but aducanumab suspended because it was moderate. Now, unlike that previous woman, he did not then immediately resolve in terms of his aria. He developed headaches. So he's still off treatment, but he developed headaches for a period of week, which then resolved. And during that time, he developed worsening of his aria E. So if you look at the flare on the left, you can see more severe aria E on here. And he developed in the boxes that Tammy has carefully drawn around them, he's developed 18 microhemorrhages during that period. He says he feels entirely well. It took six months for the aria E to resolve and the aria H stabilized. So question, what are you going to do with this one? I'm not sure. Resume aducanumab. Continue to suspend and to ensure stability of ARIA or discontinue permanently. Okay. And I think that's a very, very pragmatic, sensible Excellent. solution. Excellent. Okay. So that's exactly what we did. And the reason was, you know, this was something that progressed in spite of him being off treatment. He still hadn't got up to 10 milligrams. It took a long time to resolve. Um, he was apoe 44 so higher risk of recurrence as well. We didn't think he'd get up to 10. So exactly, exactly what we did. And that's everything I want to tell you. I just want to briefly say, reiterate a couple of things. So firstly, this is all about clinical sensibility and discussion with patients and with radiology colleagues. We have guidance, but it's guidance and clinical has to come into that and moderate that. Um, I, th I, would, I would think, what's your plan going to be for the serious cases because that's rare but important. And finally, please, please, please register your patients. Keep a register so we can learn together about what we're doing with this because we're right at the beginning of a journey. Thank you. That, that's terrific. Um, so thanks, Tammy. Thanks, Kath. Those are really great presentations. And thanks, audience. Good performance. <laughs> uh, no, good clinical sensibility. Yeah. Let's take a look at what we have already. Um, uh, maybe I'll ask Kath your, your view on this. Um, is TPA for acute stroke contraindicated when also on a monoclonal antibody for amyloid lowering? So you wrote the guidelines, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you're referring, obviously, to the, to the very sad, one of the three deaths that's occurred on Canabab, and that patient was on monoclonal antibody, got given TPA, and had a catastrophic brain bleed and died. Um, this is where clinical sensibility comes in. So, in terms of anticoagulation, with aducanumab in the trial, nobody had anticoagulation. In terms of lecanumab and guidance, the guidance is we wouldn't give it, but there isn't an exclusion of anticoagulation. That's correct, isn't it? And from the point of view of TPA, the guidance is 
we would advise against it. But again, I don't think it's a specific exclusion. But Steve. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the bottom line takeaway is if someone comes in with a stroke-like event and yeah. is on an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody, you got to act quickly always in the case of stroke uh, these days. And you want to make sure they're actually having an ischemic event. Yeah. And that, because ARIA can mimic, and as Tammy showed you, it's not just radiographically, clinically, it can mimic, an, a bad case of ARIA can mimic a stroke. And so you don't want to be treating ARIA with TPA. Yeah. So that's number one. And it's a problem because if you do a CTA and it's negative, often MRI is not obtained routinely for the stroke evaluation. Then the MRI would be very informative. So you're sort of, you have to move quickly in a case like this. And, and the treating team uh, needs to, the ER team needs to know that the patient is on this treatment. And so when they're weighing that decision, because it may not be you who's actually making that decision, it's gonna be an ER or a neurology physician on, in the site, um, that, so they can factor that in. I don't know if Tammy, if you wanna comment. Yeah, we, this was something we discussed ahead of time. At, at our institution, the hyperacute stroke protocol is such that it gets called in from the ambulance and we get, they hit the scanner, we get the CTA, before their medical record is actually integrated or linked. And so at my institution, these patients would actually be at very high risk of rolling down a stroke treatment protocol based on a CTA, CTP, um, and you know, having a very low threshold for putting them over into our, we have a wake-up protocol that we use for other types of strokes where they get a hyperacute MRI. And for these patients, um, I think it's going to be critically important that the, that the patient and their caregiver have the ability to tell the team in the ER that they're on this medication. Um, they may go to a you know, different ER closer to home, not where they're getting treatment, and that, that record of the treatment may not be available to the people making the TPA decision. Right. Um, the other option is to consider other treatments like thrombectomy, uh, clot removal, and not use TPA if you can avoid it. If, you're really, if you've documented a stroke and you really think they need that. So you're going to be weighing one serious risk against another serious risk. Um, question for t quick question for Tammy. You did very well going through all those cases quickly. Um, are the monthly MRIs uh, for follow-up after an ARI episode with contrast or without? So the routine MRI protocol for monitoring an asymptomatic patient is actually, it's recommended that it's a non-contrast MRI. Um, so it would be a very brief protocol, directed protocol. However, if the patient is having symptoms or if you have a finding on that MRI, um, then personally and from the American Society for Neuroradiology, we would recommend um, getting the full protocol to evaluate those other differential diagnoses, which you would need the other sequences for. Another question is, um, have differences in the scans for ARIA cases been found between symptomatic and asymptomatic? And you want to comment first? And I, can, I can comment about that. Um, so yes and no. So the, the more severe the findings are on the MRI, the more likely that patient is to be symptomatic. And the cases where they're asymptomatic, it's more likely to be a mild MRI finding. Um, but specifically, you know, as a neurologist where you're used to co-localizing uh, 
edema in this area with a, with a specific symptom, and there's much less of that known right now. It's an area we may learn a lot about over the next year, though. Right. There's a lot of variability. Uh, Tammy's right that the higher on each end, you're more likely to get symptoms or not. But sometimes you have a small change and there are, there are symptoms, they're symptomatic. Sometimes you have a dramatic change on imaging and no symptoms. So you can't rely on it. Uh, but it's certainly good to, to be checking it. Um, okay. You mentioned, Kath mentioned about registering your patients. This is really important. Um, and I know we're from all parts of the world here, so we, we're not just doing, don't want to be exclusively focused on the U.S. But in the U.S., there's a requirement from Medicare that for coverage, patients have to be enrolled in a registry. And Medicare has uh, established their own portal. It's now live. It's very short, uh, where people, where basic information is obtained. The Alzheimer's Association has a registry called AlzNet, which is more detailed and actually collects images. We're going to learn a lot about what happens with these treatments, but only if people are registered. So in the U.S., you're going to have to register people in order to get covered, but I recommend using a registry that's robust so we can learn as much as we can because there are really a lot of questions about, especially about safety, but also about efficacy. Um, okay, one question is, this is a good one, why not use Boston criteria for excluding patients for anti-amyloid drugs? You want to comment briefly about that CAA? I think it's the... So I don't actually remember what the Boston criteria ha ha lists. Well, the question is about rating uh, the likelihood of CAA, yeah. that CAA is present. And the group that Steve Greenberg leads in at Mass yeah. General has come up and with revisions over. There's a new version that just came out, which actually includes white matter hyperintensities for the first time as part of the criteria for uh, detecting the likelihood of underlying CAA. I think that's a good question. And I think what we need to do is standardize this in the field, what concerns me the most is that we're going to be haphazard in the rollout. And that some say, Tammy is a super expert in this area and very attentive and, and you're motivated about this and want to do it, you know, do it right. Uh, but then you're going to have other places without experience, without motivation, and it won't be done as carefully. But it, if, the more we can standardize it where we actually, since there are specific criteria for inclusion and exclusion, if uh, to rate the number, count the number of microhemorrhages, the number of areas of siderosis, if there's a macro hemorrhage, the number of infarcts, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that are in those uh, potential exclusions, and then have a rating, a checklist before you treat somebody, and have the radiologist. I, that's, I'm going to encourage Tammy if she can help standardize this so we can roll it out. Um, you know, the Boston criteria would be like the next step beyond that, but if we could just do the basics, of what's in the label and what's what we used in the phase three programs, that would be. And I think helpful. I really do think that's the the key is that there's a lot we don't know about this, and so as much as possible, if we can at least reproduce what was used in the trials, that's going to give us a good starting point, and the rest of it can be in addition to that. I could tell you just within the last couple of months at my own institution, I had neurologists claiming that 
we could only do three TMRIs for these patients and radiologists claiming that certain scanners wouldn't be eligible because they didn't have the SWI license where neither of those are actually in the criteria that we need. So people are kind of going to opposite extremes thinking about you know, how, how to manage this. So I think the, the baseline should be what has been specified in the trials and has come right. out on the FDA label and anything else you want to add to that, we're in the range of we're all learning it together. Right. So, um, yeah, a big question would be if, you're, if your center is used to using SWI and SWI is more sensitive and you detect eight microhemorrhages on SWI, is that person appropriate and, yeah. you, and you don't have the equivalent GRE? So that's going to be, and it's going to come up. Two more questions and then we'll quit. They're great questions. Um, would you exclude patients with MMSE of 20 or 21 who are functionally mild AD? Um, that, that's a very relevant question because in our experience, offering aducanumab once it was approved uh, by FDA is the main reason we had to uh, turn people away was they were too impaired. And we have a lot of people who were very motivated for treatment, but had more mild to moderate or moderate Alzheimer's stage, Alzheimer's disease. So again, in the US, Medicare is going to be collecting the MMSC. They're going to ask for that number. And while you can use clinical judgment, I would, I would really favor if these medicines are approved for early Alzheimer's disease. If someone has moved beyond early Alzheimer's disease, then you have risks, but we haven't, don't have a proven benefit. So now you're, the risk-benefit ratio is shifting away. So you have to be, uh, just be a good clinician and tell you know, the patient, be really frank with the patient and the family, I'm so sorry, but you know, the state, you, your loved one or you don't have, you don't fit the stage of the disease. And last question, it came up yesterday for those of you who went to the update about the uh, frame, diagnostic framework, what if someone has late and they have amyloid that considered to be amyloid positive? So if they have another cause for memory loss that looks like Alzheimer's plus some amyloid, now we don't know, often we won't know what their tau status is, are they an appropriate candidate? I don't know. I know you come from the radiology perspective, yeah. but do you have a feeling about that? I, you know, I, that would be a tough case, and it's, it's what we're going to be seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where clinical judgment comes <laughs> in. And this, this audience seems like a pretty savvy audience. So you had really had good responses uh, to some tough questions, especially from Tammy, and also some of the cases are challenging. I think if you determine that they have another disease process that's primary and amyloid is a minor component, then treating them with a, an expensive treatment and with risk involved that is unproven, then again, your risk benefit really becomes less favorable. So in your clinical judgment, there's another disease that's present that we don't have a treatment for. Offering them a treatment that is available for a minor component probably is not, it doesn't make good sense. But it, you, you'll have to weigh that out. And we don't have good tests for late yeah. yet. And we're not going to have tau on everybody coming up. We will have amyloid because they'll be required to get treatment. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit 
at peerview.com forward slash QVT860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.